Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and uh, yeah, it is the second last show of the year. Uh, it's amazing how quickly that rolled around. Uh, next week will be our last weekly show for the year. Uh, and yeah, we'll be getting into the news with Adam Boileau in just a moment. And then it will be time for this week's sponsor interview with the Airlock Digital team. And yeah, we're going to talk about the concept of admin to kernel as a security boundary, sort of expanding on a conversation Adam and I had recently. And uh, the Airlock guys come down on the side that it is a boundary. It is a security boundary because Microsoft is trying to make it one, basically. So yeah, uh, we also talk about uh, why a vulnerable driver block list can't really work and uh, obviously is an allow listing company. Company, uh, they're going to think allow listing is a better approach uh, to solving this problem, but I happen to think that they're absolutely right. Uh, so yeah, that chat is coming up later, but first up, uh, we are going to get into the news with Adam Boileau, but before we do, I just want to talk a little bit of housekeeping, Adam. Uh, we're going to have fewer listeners uh, to this week's edition than usual because Spotify is no longer updating our podcast on its platform because, drum roll please, uh, we rotated our SSL certificates last week and uh, Spotify doesn't like this. Maybe they're there. Maybe it's for security reasons. Maybe they're cert pinning us for, for robustness <laughs> to I, stop I, our podcast being hijacked. I don't but, know, but it, like, I, like a comedy of errors stemmed from this like certificate rotation that I did last week with uh, a friend of mine who helps me admin the um, the Risky Biz web, web server, right? And uh, I've got one of those stupid SSL subscriptions via GoDaddy and logged in to like get the new cert and there was no button to actually generate it. So we just bought a cert from somewhere else and like threw it in. You'd think problem solved, right? But then GoDaddy being GoDaddy later that night just automatically uh, like reissued certs for us because they were going to expire in a month. And so there's no button to do that yourself, but it will just automatically <laughs> do it and email it to you. And then I'm guessing that because there were two certs for the same domain from the same issuer, like stuff got confused. Google Podcasts stopped working for a bit. There were problems with Pocket Casts as well. Anyway, people do not tune in uh, to listen to us talking about Spotify and podcasting and whatnot. So let's get into the security news. And uh, a big story, uh, Adam, that's broken over the last week, in my view, is that uh, these Android platform like signing keys or signing certificates have leaked and have been used to sign malware and these are the uh, these are the certificates used to sign code that you know the, the the actual manufacturers of handsets use right these are very like high trust things yes and the reporting is that uh, they've seen malware in the wild signed by stolen platform keys from major vendors uh, samsung and lg in particular which you know those are not small manufacturers of phones yes obscure uh, obscure manufacturer samsung <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, like the way the android permission system works like these certificates are used to sign like the actual android application uh, so that runs in a pretty privileged context it can access the data doesn't have to ask permissions so you know if you were a, a malware person and you were convincing people to download a sideload malicious apps you'd have to go through some kind of privesque process normally to get access to data or cameras or whatever else whereas if your app is signed by one of these keys then yeah you can just straight up you know you're running in a privileged context immediately so that's kind of concerning um so google had some write-up uh, they said they haven't seen anything in the actual play store um, that has been signed with these keys. Uh, so clearly, the, this is stuff that's coming out of other, you know, other app stores being sideloaded, etc. But that's still bad. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I mean, there's bad. no. There, 
and there's no word on really how these keys came to be in the possession of malware authors. But my favorite part of this story, Adam, my absolute favorite part of this is, tell me, was it some ultra elite five eyes equation group crew using these certificates to sign malware, mate? Is that what was going on? Mm, no. <laughs> According to Rapid7, uh, the malware that they have seen was straight up adware. I mean, which, I just, you know. What do you even say to that? <laughs> they don't even know what they have. They don't even know what they have. They're like someone selling a barn find classic 1950s Porsche for 200 bucks, you know? <laughs> or these keys are so widely available and so cheap that no one really cares. Yeah. And, you know, just your, your average um, ad fraud group can just go buy them on a forum somewhere and, and yeah. Yeah, so, but I mean, like, shouldn't these things be in a HSM? <laughs> like, you you would think thinking, so. Right? You would think so. Uh, Samsung has put out a statement, though, um, and they say, quote, there have been no known security incidents regarding this potential vulnerability. Right. Yeah, um, well, so that explains why <laughs> stuff is out in the wild? Like, that that's doesn't... Ma uh, that's malware signed with their stolen key. Like, potential vulnerability. Potential vulnerability. Of your, of your platform keys being nicked. And, uh, I mean, these keys are not used for like software updates, so that's I guess a, a, a bonus, maybe. <laughs> but well, that's something. Christ. But I'm guessing there'd be a TLS layer to get through there as well, right? So you've got your actual, you know, code signing keys, but then all of that stuff is going to get distributed via some sort of TLS protected channel. You would certainly hope so, but as you've seen from your experience, TLS is not always straightforward either. So uh, I don't know. Um, it's a mess, and I am surprised this isn't getting more coverage. I mean, I guess the fact they weren't in the main Play Store is is one excuse. And then the process of fixing this, of like rotating and revoking and, and re like that's also a real mess. It's just a... Yeah, why, how could this stuff not be in an HSM, not be robustly secured? You know, it's probably lying around in some Git repo somewhere inside Samsung and someone's just, you know, won a fay VPN in and helped themselves. But, I, you know, you kind of want to believe that, you know, the, one of the largest platforms in the world is, you know, not... You want to believe that it was like someone doing that, that Mission Impossible Tom Cruise thing on a little string, yes. you know what I mean? That's like what you that's, want, yes. Yeah, that's what you want to believe, that's but not. I think it was probably <laughs> left lying around somewhere. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> Moving on to other other stuff I consider to be pretty big news. Uh, you remember like LastPass got owned uh, sometime back in August and at the time they said, don't worry, no customer data impacted, yada, yada, yada. Uh, looks like whoever took that data that was actually obtained in that breach has now used it to do further attacks against LastPass. And in this case, some customer data has gone for a walk, uh, shall we say. Uh, but I guess the good news here is that LastPass generally uses a pretty sensible architecture. So I'm not sure what the actual impact of this is going to be. Yes, they've said that someone gained access to kind of back-end storage that was shared between them and the, the affiliate GoTo, which makes the, like, go to my PC and various other bits. Um, so we don't know kind of, you know, beyond the fact that there's been some access to storage and presumably some data, you know, the fact that their architecture is designed to be somewhat resilient against this kind of thing is great, you know, given how many people store very, very important passwords in LastPass. But it does, you know, you look at it and you just think, man... The old password notebook on the desk, piece of paper, as long as your webcam can't see it, maybe yeah. is yeah, it makes you feel a little bit better at night uh, than putting it all in the cloud. But maybe I'm just being old-fashioned, stuck in the mud. 
It's it's just not comforting news, is it? When you see that these organizations where we're centralizing trust are having issues, right? When we got stolen stolen keys, uh, access to password management companies, etc. It's it's just makes you feel a little uneasy. It, it certainly does. And, you know, obviously using a password manager to not have the same password on everything, like having different unique passwords for every service is still a, an improvement. Uh, so we're not suggesting that you don't use password managers. But, you know, in this in this trajectory that we're on, where we've gone from mainframe computing to personal computing and decentralized back to centralized computing again in the cloud, now we're starting to see some of the bad reasons for putting everything centralized and centralizing all that risk. And then the consequences when a bad thing does happen you know, it's going to push us back out to the, you know, just decentralized personal computing again. And, you know, I, for one, I'm ready for that. Now, Adam, I don't know if you've ever thought about applying for a job as a uh, Chinese APT person. Um, but like after reading this, you know, I'm sure there's going to be some people who are going to, who are going to consider it. Uh, apparently APT 41, which is a state sponsored group that also dabbles in a bit of cybercrime, They have managed to pinch uh, this is according to the United States Secret Service. They've managed to pinch about $20 million of like US COVID relief benefits and loans and things like that. So they're doing straight up fraud and stealing cash just and pocketing it, which is just what a world. It is. It's crazy times. Uh, using their access to you know various uh, state government entities uh, in the United States, um, and obviously the the COVID benefits program there was rolled out very very quickly. And you know they've hosed the US government hosed you know hundreds of billions of dollars around the place, and quite a lot of it went wrong. I think some of the stats from the US Secret Service investigating the the COVID um, unemployment payments overall said that like forty four percent of payments, sorry forty two percent of payments uh, early on in like the first six months were paid incorrectly which so in that respect 20 million dollars to some chinese hackers is just you know pocket lint uh, by comparison to what else was going well missing. probably not for the people who now have the 20 million dollars right well, like it might well, be pocket exactly, lint right. for the government but you know 20 million <laughs> yeah. bucks that's going to yeah, buy the, you a lot of nice BYD cars or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and the idea that you could be a, you know, ABT41 has a long and proud history of doing, you know, Chinese state interest work and pretty clearly is, you know, on that kind of scale of state-directed, state-sponsored, state, you know, endorsed or whatever, uh, you know, they're pretty clearly state, but... You know, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, bucks. you too can do crime... Uh, and uh, and uh, not 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 be at risk of arrest by the looks of things. Like if you're APT forty one, do all the crime you want. They're not going to extradite you. Yeah, yeah. Although you know, this one, you know, obviously is getting a bit of attention because it's you know straight up stealing from Uncle Sam, um, which you know I guess they've, they've stolen a lot of information from Uncle Sam, but maybe like straight up stealing his cash. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't. State I wouldn't recommend. A little bit. I wouldn't recommend any holidays to Thailand. Uh, <laughs> no, in, the, in their in their futures, right? So, better hope you can find some nice spots in China itself. Right? <laughs> I, I was I was reminded of the conversation that uh, Tom and Gruck had on the Between Two Nerds episode about you know being indicted by the U.S. government being a badge of honor that you could get like an extra forum badge, you know, in in China. Um, and yeah, maybe the same thing, you know, if you've stolen more than $10 million from Uncle Sam, you can get an extra badge in the forums. <laughs> so, you know, it seems like a, you know, maybe it's a good career development move. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am sure there are some people out there who, uh, on our side, Adam, who might want to, you know, get their indictments actually in paper form so they can have them framed. 
um, or, you know, various, like, <laughs> you get some sanctions applied to you and it's like, can I have some sort of certificate for that? Or are you just going to put my name on a list on a website? I can't really frame that. Um, this is something that may have popped up among a couple people yeah. I know. But anyway, uh, staying with the Chinese uh, government and uh, its APT crews, apparently Amnesty International, uh, its Canadian branch uh, has suffered an intrusion that has been linked to China by SecureWorks. They haven't really gone into too much detail about um the basis under uh, uh, through which they they made that attribution, but a big part of it seems to be the information these attackers were actually looking for once they once they gained access. Yeah, you can certainly see a pretty straightforward motivation for the Chinese government to be you know inside you know, groups like Amnesty. So you know makes sense from a you know motivation point of view. Uh, but yeah, I, you know it must be a tough life being an opera profit. You know a, a group like that. Uh, having to deal with very, very real threats, you know, that are threats to life in some cases, if you're dealing with, um, you know, information that's coming from inside China. It's, that's hard, very, very hard, very real problems to have to solve. Yeah, and we've also got a report here from Alexander Martin over at The Record that an Iranian espionage campaign has been targeting, uh, you know, journalists, diplomats, activists, etc. This is according to Human Rights Watch. I mean, this stuff barely rates as news these days because it's just, you know, it's not shocking anymore. It's just... It's just how things are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the details of the campaign in this particular case was exactly what you'd expect. Some fake Microsoft login screens, some fake Google and Yahoo and whatever else login screens, some text messages or WhatsApp messages to lure people in, get in, steal their mailbox, get out again. Yeah, exactly what you'd expect. Now let's talk about the latest output from Google Tag. Uh, Tag is, of course, the threat analysis group at uh, at Google. And they have essentially doxed a, uh, a Spanish company as being a provider of commercial exploits, or as they've called it, like commercial spyware. Uh, they had a look at what was uh, a historical campaign and sort of attributed it to this company and also uh, kind of figured out that at the time this company was apparently selling these bugs, they were O'Day. So, uh, yeah, they've written this up. You do wonder why they've chosen to dox this company. Usually this is something Tag would do if these bugs are being used in places that, you know, uh, Google doesn't think they should be, right? Yes, I'm sure they, they have their reasons. And, you know, these kinds of investigations are always really interesting to see inside of. Um, in this particular case, they got a, like an anonymous submission of a, like a copy of some of the source of, of a few of the components um, that they then went and analysed and then went back and found evidence of those campaigns having happened historically. So that's you know an interesting twist to start with. Uh, but the bit that I really enjoyed here was they had some of the like build scripts and things used to, to package up the malware. Uh, and one of them was um, a Python script that's you know run after the build, which goes through to make sure they haven't accidentally leaked the name of their company their tools or their own names yeah uh, from it and so there's a, a screenshot in the blog of like list of bad strings we shouldn't have like the names of these tools and our company and our login names <laughs> so it's not wrong yeah, that's that's pretty funny. This is a company called uh, Variston, uh, based in Barcelona, Spain. I think was the conclusion. So, yeah, bad day at the office there. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, looks like some of Russia's uh, cyber funny business is starting to spill outside of Ukraine and into other countries in the region. Uh, Alexander Martin has done a write up of some um, of a warning by Microsoft that you know, things could be maybe kicking off at the moment because we've seen some... Are they wiper attacks hitting uh, Poland? 
yes, yeah, obviously Poland being you know very close and involved uh, has seen some wipers and other things you know kind of spilling over from uh, from the situation in Ukraine. You know, the early attacks against the satellite network is one example of things that spilled out. But yeah, we're now seeing now a little bit less discrimination in how the targeting is being done. Um, but I mean, in that Microsoft- case, the the damage caused to organizations that were outside of the the conflict i mean that was sort of collateral damage right they weren't being targeted so this this is actually targeting of organizations outside of ukraine right with uh the prestige ransomware which i as i understand it functionally is a wiper yes yeah that that's what the reports seem to suggest and yeah obviously we would have concerns about uh you know the extent to which you know, it could draw NATO further in and how that, you know, ties up. We, we talked about that uh, Iranian attack on uh, Albania a, a few weeks ago now and whether that would be a thing that they would kind of pull in the NATO, this is an attack on the entire alliance kind of thing. Um, but either way, I mean, given how not Petya went wrong, even when the targeting isn't specific, there's still, you know, chances for things to, you know, of us to experience bad cybers as a result of this conflict um, and, yeah, we, we, you know, people have been have been warning about that since the beginning of this conflict. We haven't really seen it, but it does. You know, Microsoft's warning is that this is actually starting to happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm still not sure what I think will happen here, whether or not Mark, you know, Dmitry Alperovich, a good friend of ours, uh, you know, said early on that if things get really desperate for Russia, there is absolutely a chance that they're going to, you know, go a little bit nuts with um, uh, destructive attacks all over the West. And we haven't seen that yet, but, you know, it's it's still on the cards. I think the thing that has kept Russia from doing that is fears around escalation, but certainly the more difficult things get for Russia, and they are getting difficult, uh, the more difficult things get for Russia, the more likely it is that we could see something like that. So anyway, that's just an interesting report that I wanted to flag. Uh, Staying with wiper wiper attacks though, uh, Russia also facing uh, some of its own. Yes, we've seen examples of uh, wipers dressed up as ransomware attacking um, some civil institutions in Russia, courts, uh, local mayors, offices, that kind of thing. And part of me doesn't feel so bad about that, given how much we've seen, you know, uh, ransomware attacking, you know, US local governments and schools and whatever else. Uh, but yes, there's probably some, you know, Ukrainian somewhere who's feeling quite pleased with the, with the success of this campaign. And, you know... Yeah, I mean, we've been on the receiving end of it for a number of years. Kind of tough, Russia. Yeah. Uh, Dimitri said something else interesting recently because, you know, as, as you and I both know, Adam, he's he's been tracking the conflict over there very, very closely. He made a really interesting point a week or two ago, which is that, you know, there's been all of this talk about disrupting power grids with, uh, you know, cyber attacks and whatnot. We know that Russia's lowing, running low on things like cruise missiles and they're still using them to attack... Uh, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian power grid, right? So if cyber was that effective at causing permanent harm uh, to power infrastructure, you would think they would be doing it that way, right? So I think this is an interesting data point in, you know, how effective can uh, uh, cyber actions be in causing proper damage to uh, power infrastructure. And it looks like the powers that be in Russia have determined, and, you know, they are the experts in disrupting power grids via uh, via cyber means, and they've decided it's still worth using their dwindling stocks of very hard-to-get cruise missiles to try to achieve these effects rather than uh, doing it electronically. Yes, I, I'm, you know, this conflict is just going to be so interesting when we do the wrap, you know, when, when it's over and done with and we can go back and kind of understand you know, a bunch of this stuff about how effective cyber was, you know, what the options were, how it played out, uh, and how that fits in with the wider kinetic thing. And, yeah, there's, 
a great many, you know, long tomes of, of column inches to be written in war colleges around the world, I'm sure. Now, I'm going to apologise to all of our uh, listeners right now for this next one. Uh, you can mm-hmm. skip ahead a few minutes if you want to avoid this discussion, but we are going to talk about ChatGPT because this thing has lit up Twitter. Of course, if people haven't seen it, it's a, you know, it's a chatbot from uh, OpenAI where you can go, you can ask it questions, have conversations with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, people have been losing their minds over this thing because it, it, it you know, you can get some cool text out of it. You can ask it to help you on coding problems, et cetera, et cetera, but... You know, having played around with it for a little bit, um, just just to pull together some some thoughts for this podcast, I'm pretty underwhelmed. I've got to be honest. Like, it doesn't write well. It's very bad with high concepts. You know, the way that I see this thing is it's like a much, much better version of something like Siri. You know, as an interface, it's great, but it, it's no good at high concepts. It's not very good at explaining stuff but it speaks with great confidence while making all sorts of errors. So I, I think I referred to it as like electronic Glenn Greenwald on um, <laughs> on Mastodon the other day. I think you said one of your colleagues described it as, uh, you know, as a, as a machine learning based mansplainer, um, <laughs> which also seems to fit. But that said, I think this type of technology, it, it did give us a glimpse into what this machine learning based, uh, you know, sort of, uh, natural speech interface stuff is going to look like in the future. And it in, in, in some senses, it is impressive, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the interface is so approachable and it's so, um, it resembles how people think about machine learning and think about artificial intelligence. Like in the movies, you know, you get to just kind of talk to it and have a conversation. And that is very relatable compared to, you know, people who've, whose experience of, of artificial intelligence is things like, you know, Google Photos being able to find pictures of dogs. Right, that doesn't seem as like the the conversational aspect. I just think makes it so relatable for for people, and why everyone is so excited to see it making poems and music and you know writing song lyrics and stuff. I think like uh, Casey Casey Newton said that it uh, is very good at doing uh, fluent bullshit. I think is yes. what he called it. Right, yes. but where? Okay, so where I think it's got relevant relevance to what we're talking about is I can imagine this as a SOC interface or for doing investigations. Hey, what do we know about that IP? You know, being able to ask it questions like that, uh, I think pretty valuable. Definitely pretty yes. valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And and looking like you know, it's a window into what the future is going to be like. Yes. You know, where we have something like this that is, you know, very much a you know a force multiplier. Like in the way that um, you know, people like people of our age who understand how computers work, we're used to making little scripts and using computers to solve our problems. And we have, you know, we're so much more effective because of those skills. And someone who has grown up with access to this kind of machine learning is just going to be so effective in ways that, you know, yeah. it kind of you know, reminds me of the Industrial Revolution, right? Artificial intelligence has so much prospect. Well, yeah, I mean, the, you could say, hey, computer, write me a script that does this and yes. it will do it, right? Like, it might make mistakes, but it's, it's you know... It's certainly close. Yeah, I mean, I asked it to explain, just as, as part of my testing, I asked it to explain to me uh, how, like, U2F works, right? And the first answer it gave me was that, like, it gave me an answer that it generates a code that you enter into a website. And I said, that's not how U2F works. Enter. And then it gave me the correct answer. So, so the problem with it is, is it's frequently going to confidently tell you very, very wrong things. Yes. Right? Uh, this is the problem with it. Um, but I guess the reason I wanted to talk about this this week is that people, I saw one person on Twitter or Mastodon or one of them, you know, uh, say that this was the equivalent of like splitting the atom. 
you know, that it was a, that it was a development of that sort of significance. And I'm sorry to say, I don't see it. No, no. I mean, it, 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 I can really see how this is going to be helpful. And some of the output that people have, have given, like of spitting, you know, decom, decompiled code out of, you know, out of Ida or Ghidra or whatever, and throwing it into the ML and saying, hey, what's this? And having it say, yeah. hey, like, this is an implementation of this particular, you know, hashing algorithm or whatever else. Like, that's super, super impressive and super useful. But it has also been trained on, you know, the entire combined works of Stack Overflow. So, well, and speaking of Stack Overflow, have actually banned responses <laughs> generated with ChatGPT because they, it turns out that it's making mistakes left and right and it's just filling up Stack Overflow with like wrongness. Well, well, <laughs> more wrongness. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a, it's such a wild thing to play with and the way that it can just like hallucinate. Did you see the post where someone had said, hey, can you behave like a Linux terminal? Yeah. And then would just say like LS and, and whatever else to it. And then it would just, you know, make it up, you know, statistically hallucinate it. Uh, and then at one point he tries to query it whether it has a GPU and then it says, well, I don't have, you know, he runs like NVIDIA SMI to query the data from the NVIDIA card and then comes back and says no such command and then you just say imagine that you did have a gpu and it's a nvidia you know rtx <laughs> you know 7090 or something and then it you know spits back plausible output with like plausible amounts of watts that some future nvidia card might use and it's just it's so wild a watching it work and then b watching people try to understand it because it's just such an alien concept to so many people now um, another 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 area where i think it's relevant to us right talking about security is seo spam man this is going to be amazing for seo spam uh catalan kimpanu also pointed out to me that there's a lot of media sites out there that just copy other people's work and then publish it and then capture advertising dollars that way. So they will copy stuff from us, ask chat GPT to just rewrite it and then publish it. And you know, then they don't have to do the paraphrasing. I did, I did actually ask it to rewrite some sloppy copy and it did okay on it the first time. And I, you know, I went on Macedon and I'm like, wow, okay, that was kind of cool. And then I realized it was a fluke because then I threw like slightly better copy at it that might have a couple of subtle grammar problems and it just made them worse and changed everything to passive voice and yeah so i think it's i think this sort of tech is going to have amazing applications but it's not you know it's not as smart as people think it is people keep saying oh it's going to replace journalists no it's not it's really not it's going to replace journalists in the minds of people who don't understand what journalists do yeah you know and the as you say, like its confidence is really part of the problem. Like if you ask it to explain its reasoning and explain its sourcing, like it can't, right? Because we're yeah. still like developing how we make ML models that can explain how they arrived at their conclusions. Like that's still research. And the fact that it just sounds so convincing and that people can't tell, because we're already so bad at judging the quality of information sources and, you know, in this disinformation, post-facts, post-truth world, like we're already so far down that hole that between this and Dolly and, you know, all of the mechanisms for doing deep fakes and audio synthesis, like we're just entering into a world where who even knows? Like we can't trust senses anymore. You can't... And I, for me, the, the, the bit where computers and security start to become non-deterministic because we've let AI you know, in on, make in on the choices. process, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's it, it even just like using Microsoft Teams when you're being A-B tested for new features and you think you're going crazy. You know, it just messes with <laughs> your mind. And I don't know. The future is just going to be such a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. But, I mean, I could absolutely see this thing being a really valuable 
uh, assistant in a way that Siri isn't. I've never used yes. Siri because I just find it kind of useless. But being able to ask a, an assistant, hey, you know, I'm going on a road trip to this place. Can you map a route? You know, plan our day. Uh, we want to stop somewhere and get something to eat. Uh, you know, we've got to uh, fill up the car, that sort of thing. I mean, this sort of assistant is going to be able to do that sort of stuff. Where it falls flat is the higher higher function stuff. It's no good at that. And I wish people would stop saying that it is. <laughs> yeah, it's so fun to play with though. Like, I, yeah, so how much global productivity has been wasted by this tool becoming publicly available? Well, and apparently each query costs OpenAI a few cents, right? So it's burning <laughs> a lot of compute. So I wonder how much money, uh, you know, use it while you can, people, because they're gonna yeah. they're gonna um, lock it up again soon, I'd imagine. Yeah, start charging. Yeah, yeah. Although I'd pay a few cents a query just to just to keep playing with it, just just you know, so I can still shade it. But <laughs> anyway. Um, the Cyber Safety Board, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, you know, Cyber Safety Review Board, it's going to take a look at Lapsus um, mm. for its next report. Their, their first one was on log for shell right? So that was an interesting and worthy uh, uh, report. I think it's interesting they picked Lapsus here. You know, some people were like, oh, they should have picked SolarWinds and they didn't. But really, I think the way Lapsus roll is probably going to be more relevant to more organizations than getting attacked by, you know, Russian super hackers from intelligence agencies, to be honest. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, Lapsus is a great uh, avenue for, for them to investigate and write up just because it is so blunt. You They're know, like they, the, they... the stochastic cyber terrorists of our <laughs> internet, Adam. <laughs> and, and, and it works. Like their approach is effective and cheap and doesn't require a whole bunch of sophisticated, you know, tooling and, and so on and so forth. Like it's just a really great example of pragmatic, getting the job done, good enough hacking yeah. that, as you say, is way more likely than, than super targeted attacks. And super targeted attackers can afford to invest in breaking into stuff. Whereas, you know, lapsus style people, you know, they've just got so many options and so many great approaches. And that's, you know, if you're going to spend security dollars defending against that sort of stochastic internet terrorism uh, is, a, <laughs> is just the right, you know, it's the right place to start. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, you know, when I first read it, I thought, and you, it was probably the same for you. You're like, lapsus, why are they? Oh yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, they'll probably spit out a report in a year or something and we'll get to talk about it here. Hopefully they'll include our point about the predecessors. Lulzek being quite a bit funnier and that, uh, you know, perhaps yeah, they would have done better. Were they funnier? I think we, I was kicking this around with someone the other day and I think we, we came to the conclusion that these guys are like, you know, a meaner version of Lulzek also on meth. Um, yeah. <laughs> is, is sort of how you describe them. Meth head lolsack. No good. Yeah. No bueno. Um, yeah, Mastodon. Mastodon is being used to do DDoS reflection, I think. So there was a bit of confusion about this when it was first, report, was first reported. Because initially it looked like someone was like trying to DDoS Mastodon servers. But then I think it later transpired that really what they were doing was harvesting the resources of Mastodon servers to DDoS arbitrary domains. Is that about right, Adam? That's my understanding, yes. Like through the kind of federation process where Mastodon servers can exchange messages with each other to make the like global consistent view of the platform that people were setting up malicious Mastodon servers that would then, you know, kind of use the federation process to attack other victims. And we're not talking, you know, hundreds of gigabits, I don't think. Like it wasn't, you know, DNS amplification reflection kind of thing. But still, you know, great on the zeitgeist, you know, get in there and, and uh, abuse whatever the new thing is. And it's it's funny, right? Because you're seeing 
this is an ecosystem that has been left alone for a long time and it's a learning <laughs> curve for a lot of the people yes. who've been running instances and whatever and all of a sudden it's like hang on i got to block these domains and like do i do this through dns or like and people are people are blocking it dumb ways and like it's just it's chaos right but this yeah. is to be expected yeah it is, it is and i mean honestly it's probably at least more transparent and better and more fun to watch than you know twitter failing so yeah and hive social which is another one that apparently a bunch of people have gone to uh since twitter became man they brought back that guy who runs the daily stormer i can't believe it anyway so that's why i'm not really posting much at, at, at twitter these days folks um but yeah hive social apparently had some issue some vuln that was like catastrophic and they did the right thing here and just pulled the plug on the whole thing until they could fix it. I think that's great. Yeah, that, that seemed like a great response. They had, I, I think it was some kind of like direct object reference or something where you could just access everyone's messages, posts, images, regardless of whether they were private messages or whatever. Uh, and yeah, they, they just turned it off. Um, they were up to what, a couple of million users, I think. Uh, interestingly, Hive Social is like a two-person team. Oh, wow. Um, so I mean, I guess that makes it easy for them to make good decisions. Like, let's just turn the platform off until we've fixed it. On the other hand, it does make you wonder whether people who are moving from Twitter with thousands and thousands of employees to this that had two yeah. understood that change in, in posture, which probably they didn't. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about Mastodon is people are really treating it like a sort of start again moment. Um, so I, 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 I'm not really getting any dms and they're not really dms on mastodon you can just make a post only visible to the people you tag right so i you know people don't seem to be really using that much and so i think there's an understanding of like well hey if we're going to have a service like this let's use it a bit differently and the types of things people are talking about and the way they're talking about them anyway i'm i'm finding it a really worthwhile place to spend some time mastodon's good man are you using yeah, it much yeah, I'm enjoying it too. It's become my kind of, you know, I've got five minutes to kill before a meeting and I want to be, you know, distracted with something interesting, you know, which used to be Twitter and, you know, now it's Mastodon and yeah, I'm enjoying it. And look, just quickly on the, on Twitter stuff, um, Chinese, well, presumably the Chinese government has been spamming uh, Twitter with uh, city name hashtags and whatnot to drown out news about protests against COVID zero that have been occurring there. And the interesting part about this is apparently the team that would have stopped that from happening is all gone at Twitter, right? So we, we've, you know, this is just one data point where something bad happened on the platform because of the staff reductions. Um, and I, I suspect we're going to see more and more stuff like this, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I think you know a lot of people have found that the quality of their overall, you know, of Twitter experience in terms of, of the posts and spam and, and whatever else has gone down. But yeah, this is a, a concrete example of that then being used by someone um, to further their interests. Yeah. Now let's just quickly whip through a bit of a ransomware roundup. You know, no, no slowdown in ransomware hitting targets that it shouldn't hit. We've got a French hospital complex here uh, that apparently had to suspend operations and transfer patients. Uh, we've linked through to a story from the record talking about that. Uh, Security Week reports that Rackspace confirmed ransomware. Uh, uh, ransomware was responsible for uh, it was an outage, wasn't it? Oh no, it was there. <laughs> that's right. It was their hosted exchange environment, and yeah, I think they've yeah. just they've just had to shut it down. Right. Yes. Yeah. It sounds like it's dead. Um, Gossy the dog, Kevin Beaumont uh, on Mastodon was reporting that they hadn't patched uh, against uh, the most recent exchange bugs, and yeah, their entire platform seems dead and gone, and they're migrating customers to Office three sixty five. Yeah. Which... I mean, f fair enough, right? Like enough is enough, and um, just get away from it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the only reason that platform existed was that it predated the existence of Microsoft's, you know, hosted exchange offerings, and it's just customers who have been there for a long time um, yeah. and didn't have any incentive to move until now. No, exactly, and it, and it makes total sense where you'd be like, okay, this is the final straw. Come on, what are we doing? Why would we even resuscitate this thing? Let's just migrate yes. off it. So, yeah, ransomware attackers did them a favour <laughs> in that case. They'll probably make more money reselling the, uh, you know, office online, you know, exchange licensing or whatever else. They'll there make more money. Rackspace, buy, buy, buy. <laughs> Uh, Guatemala. It's down 15%, so it's a good time. <laughs> oh, really? Um, Guatemala's foreign ministry uh, is apparently uh, has apparently been ransomware as well. Uh, and a big ransomware thing kicking off in New Zealand, Adam. Now, I understand that you can't really talk in detail about this one because there might be a conflict there, but um, in a broad sense, the reporting seems to suggest that a managed service provider that provides services to various bits of the New Zealand government has been impacted by an incident. Uh, yes, there's a number of entities that uh, use this, you know, reasonable size managed service provider in New Zealand uh, and investigations are ongoing as to kind of what that looks like, what the impact is um, and how they're going to deal with it. Yeah. And uh, look, you know, that's a good segue into this story, which is the United Kingdom is apparently introducing mandatory incident reporting for managed service providers, uh, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, you and I have spoken about the risk of MSP compromise uh, so often and for so long, Adam, that, um, you know, it's really good to see that this is a sector that's now getting some attention. Yes, I mean the the impact of compromising a managed service provider and then going downstream into the customers is just you know it's such a great return on investment for an attacker, uh, and I think they you know they do warrant a specific sets of oversight or you know kind of more visibility than perhaps they otherwise get because so many managed service provider customers are you know small medium enterprises that don't have the resources to handle security by themselves their msps really do need to be leading them through it but you know the business model of many msps you know kind of predates security being such a big and important and very real concern and so i think a lot of msps don't necessarily have the you know the resources the funding to do as good a job as well, you now it's a, have it's an to do. entire business that for for a lot of the time it depended on margin, right? Like yes. and and compressing the margin as much as you could, and that's how you'd win work. And and it was even the same in MSSPs, right? Where companies would install an IDS, they didn't want to monitor it, they would outsource the monitoring, and they wouldn't really look at what sort of value they were going to get from it. They would just look at who would say that they looked at our logs every day for the cheapest amount of money, and yes, that's yeah. how MSSP contracts were awarded. So. You know, obviously, we've seen that swing around. There are now much more sort of premium uh, managed detection and response companies. I mean, that's what we call it now. It's MDR because you've got to stick a DR on everything. This is a podcast DR from now on, Adam. <laughs> uh, where's my billion dollars? Um, but yeah, so so I, I think, you know, things have changed as companies have realized that you can't just outsource to a low-cost MSSP and say, well, it was their job to look at the logs, you know. Um, but having some regulation around certainly at least the major MSPs makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, at the time when a lot of the MSP and MSSPs were kicking off, you know, security just kind of didn't really matter. You know, yeah. there wasn't that much actual hacking going on. There wasn't that much actual impact. Privacy legislation and stuff kind of didn't really impact it. Let me say and something controversial. Ransomware has been good for us. I think so. I mean, in the long term, yes. I mean, yeah. it's going it's, it's to a lot of, of pain sudden, for a lot of people. You got hackers who know what they're doing with a real motivation to ruin your day, and they're coming for you. And yes. that's new. Yeah, it is, right? In the you last, know, unless you know, you're a bank holding financial information that could be monetized, unless you're a crypto exchange, 
your average enterprise didn't really have to worry about high quality attackers coming in and rolling like pen testers. And now they do. And now they do. And that has, you know, it's changed the entire industry. I mean, it used to be that all of the security products and services we sold didn't have to work. Like there was no evolutionary pressure on, you know, corporate VPN services like VPN, you know, equipment to actually be good. And to yeah. actually have, you know, exploit mitigation tech in them or you know, all those kinds of things. I mean, Palo, Palo Alto matter. was still yes. like recently selling, what is it, like MIPS on Linux? Linux on MIPS, sorry. With no memory protection. And, yeah. Uh, Linux on MIPS with no, you know, like stack protection or anything else. Yeah, like total 90s garbage tech that, it, yeah, it never had to work. And now it does. And now we're mm. in the real world with real motivated attackers uh, with good quality tooling and, and yeah, the financial incentive to wreck your day, as you said. Now, of course, I don't mean that ransomware is a good thing before you at me, before you write <laughs> in. I don't think ransomware is a good thing, but I certainly think um, it has changed the way companies think about security for sure. So, you know, it's a shame that we had to have such destructive events uh, to, to sort of convince people that this is stuff worth caring about. But here we are. Here we are. Now, you've got to love a, uh, a United States Department of Justice uh, media release that starts with the words Florida man. Um, and uh, here we are, Adam, a Florida man has been sentenced to 18 months for the theft of 20 million, uh, you know, crypto magic bean tokens or whatever. Uh, so 20 million bucks worth of cryptocurrency by doing a SIM swap. Um, yeah, they're going to jail. They have to like pay ridiculous amounts of restitution to the victim. So I'm guessing they're probably effectively bankrupt at this point i'll link through to the release not really much to add here but lol yeah i mean, I think one of the people involved was 15 years old and is now on the hook for paying 20 million dollars worth of restitution so you know that's at least some justice and you know we've talked a bunch about you know the u.s government does move slowly but does not you know does not forget uh, so a good reminder to everyone who did crypto crimes in the early days when we thought it meant anonymity Yes, indeed. Although I'm not sure how they got this guy. Was it through crypto tracing or was it more the, um, you know, the other end of the crime with the SIM swaps and whatnot? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Uh, they only went into, you know, a limited amount of detail about how they went there, which, you know, I imagine is a thing they do on purpose as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and Binance apparently has frozen $3 million after someone found an exploit in a thing called Anchor, which I don't really understand or care to really learn about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had some bug in their smart contract that lets you, like, just mint tokens or whatever for free. And then, yeah, someone stole a bunch of beans and turned them into different sorts of cyber beans and, and, and yeah. Blah, blah, beans, 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 beans. <laughs> I, I love the way the record wrote this one up. Kudos to Jonathan Grieg, who wrote the lead. I'll read his lead. Binance, one of the last remaining crypto giants, froze about three million, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so um, nice. We like a bit of subtle shade. We um, do. Dressed up as a serious lead. <laughs> Nicely done, Jonathan. Uh, I'm pretty sure he listens. I don't know. We've interacted on Twitter, but I'm not sure if he listens. Hi, if you do. Uh, love your work. Uh, and this is one that we covered in the newsletter. Um, there was an app that got kicked from the Play Store. It was like dressed up as an SMS utility or something. And if a user downloaded it, they would, you know, load it up and it would just appear to freeze. But in the background, oh boy, it was busy, Adam. <laughs> yes, this was a, a scam where the app would um, relay text messages back to the attacker who would then sign up to a bunch of services that required SMS-based, you know, kind of authentication when you joined. Uh, and it would also relay any other SMS messages that you got, you know, just for, for good luck as well. Um and uh, yeah, they were then on selling access to accounts, you know, made in this way for use for, you know, other criminal purposes. 
Yeah, I mean, I just think it's an interesting way to bulk bypass um, that step, which is an anti-abuse and anti-spam step where, oh, well, you know, make someone reply to a text message or, you know, get a code from a text message or whatever to make sure they're a real person. Um, you know, there were 100,000 downloads of this thing. So, you know, if, if, if we see more of this sort of thing, we're maybe going to need to reconsider the idea that uh, ability to receive a text message equals real person. Yeah, it may well have passed its use-by date, I think. Now, we got one here from the Daily Swig, which kind of went under the radar a bit, and I thought, huh, (laughs) (laughs) this actually kind of looks like it might be a big deal. Uh, There is apparently an open-source implementation of SAML written in Go, and it has problems, and I'm just not sure how many people use this implementation, so I'm not sure how big a deal this is. Tell me. Yes, I mean, that really is the crux of the question, is how many things use this uh, particular Go library. Uh, in SAML messages, the kind of XML that gets passed around to do auth, there's a bunch of signatures and things, and doing cryptographic signing of XML messages. I mean, Peter Goodman talked about that at KiwiCon too. I was going to bring that up. I, yeah, how yeah. dare you? That was what I was going to bring up, because this was a talk that Goodman did at KiwiCon what? Like, it's got to be over a decade I think now, too. Right? I think too. So that's 2008. Yeah. It was such an all-time talk just about the inherent problems of trying to do stuff like, you know, nested signing in blobs of XML and whatever. And like, he really did a wonderful job of showing that you're just always going to have problems. Yes, any standard that involves you having to verify XML documents or validate them or validate portions of them, or as you say, validate nested portions of them is just always going to be a disaster show when it comes down to implementation. And this particular bug is a classic of the genre where you stick two assertions or two parts of assertions in this one XML document. One of them is legit and signed and one of them isn't, but then the order in which the XML library parses them might mean that the <laughs> second unsigned one is the one whose value gets taken. So pretty classic, you know, a classic XML bug. But yeah, as, as you say, like if, if a heap of things use this Go library, then you, know, you can log in as anyone. Or if they don't, then it's a it's a it's no big deal, and we right? can't yeah. tell. And we can't you know, tell. That's the great bit. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Supply chain visibility. There's a yeah. horrible bug. Mm-hmm. Authors anyone. Don't know what yeah. it affects. Don't know who uses <laughs> it. Uh, you know, happy days. Uh, and look, just before we go, Adam, uh, I just want to promote a YouTube product demo that I did. Uh, I recorded this with Brett Winifred at Okta and one of his colleagues. And uh, it's looking at, I mean, it's the sort of thing that on first glance sounds kind of boring, but it actually gets there in the end. So they walk through how to set up passwordless auth, either with a YubiKey or with um, uh, their like Okta Verify endpoint agent or both, right? And that's, you know, whatever. Okay, you can set up passwordless. The interesting part is where um, they demonstrate that you can get really high quality signals if if someone tries to fish one of your passwordless users you get a really high quality signal which says this domain is trying to fish your users so even if you haven't enrolled all of your users in passwordless you can then take that information and use it to protect the wider organization because you know phishing campaigns they never just hit one inbox they hit a whole bunch of them so even by enrolling a subset of your users in passwordless auth you actually get a wider benefit and i just find it yeah a really interesting demo and discussion uh, i published it to youtube and i've dropped a link to it uh, in this week's show notes did you have a chance to watch that one i'm guessing no yeah no i i i, I did I had a quick look and um that yeah that is really just you know getting anytime you deploy a control like that the visibility you can get out of it to inform other things is often you know more useful you know than, than the actual thing yeah no, the I, know, actual I, know, thing. I know i know so, it's great. Yeah, yeah really good point i thought 
Yeah, yeah. So um, if you're an Okta customer, and I think one of the reasons Brett wanted to do that particular demo is like there's a lot of features in Okta that people don't know. Like he demonstrates the automation bits of Okta, right? Like there's no code automation bits in the platform. And, you know, there's a lot of features there that Okta users don't even know that they have. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of these features are like free, right? So yeah. uh, go check out that uh, YouTube video, particularly uh, if you are an Okta customer. But Adam, that is actually it for the week's news. Thank you so much for uh, talking about it all with me this week, mate. It's uh, it's always fun. I can't believe next week's our last show for the year, uh, but I will I will catch you then. Yeah, I will see you then, and then uh, we can talk about what's going to go horribly wrong while we're both on holiday. So always a good time. That was Adam Boileau there with a chat about the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Airlock Digital's CEO and CTO, David Cottingham and Daniel Schell. And yeah, Airlock, as you know, as you probably know by now, uh, they make an allow listing solution that's very, very popular in Australia and is definitely making inroads in other countries as well, like the United States. Uh, And it's no wonder, really, that it's succeeding because they've actually built a usable allow listing solution that can be used in large environments. Uh, Anyway, they found it uh, kind of funny, to be honest, I'm going to be honest, they found it funny uh, when it turned out that Microsoft's vulnerable driver block list uh, wasn't getting updated, as it turned out. But as you'll hear, you know, there's only so much a block list can do in this situation, because by their nature, kernel drivers need to be able to do powerful things, right? You can't just block list every powerful kernel driver, uh, because they are kernel drivers for a reason, right? So allow listing is going to be a better approach to that problem, which is really why David and Daniel have a have an interest in, in talking about this topic. But it's it's interesting, right? So we had this discussion about whether or not admin to kernel is a security boundary, uh, and also about Microsoft's recent changes to the way it signs kernel drivers. And there have been some substantial changes uh, to that process. Anyway, to start, here is David Cottingham talking about those changes. Enjoy. So I, I guess in terms of Microsoft's actions from Windows 10, 1607, uh, it doesn't load any kernel drivers uh, anymore. Microsoft don't allow any kernel drivers to be loaded where the driver isn't signed through the Microsoft hardware dev center. So from now on, you have to, if you're a driver manufacturer, you have to send a driver to Microsoft. They need to review the driver, test the driver, sign it. And it needs to meet certain requirements of testing. So Microsoft are putting in a process where they're preventing you know, they're, they're only allowing code that they want in the kernel. Yeah, so, so it's not me, like it's not like a, just any random certificate that you bought from a CA, sign it, and yeah, you're good. Exactly. And, and not yeah. even an approval process where your signing certificate gets approved and then you can sign whatever. Like everything needs to be reviewed. That's correct. And it's even reviewed manually by Microsoft. If we submit a driver to Microsoft, it takes about two or three days to actually get back to us as signed. So they're actually scrutinizing this. That's probably uh, just someone taking it out of the queue and running it through some static analysis. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it is, it says manual review on the dev center. Manually dragging and dropping it into the static analyzer. But anyway, go on. (laughs) That's it. And, and, And I guess the other thing on that is there's, you know, much talked about lately, but the Microsoft driver block list, which allows them to actually block and effectively revoke drivers from the kernel. So Microsoft now has the power to allow you in the kernel and also take you out at any time. And now the driver block list is is working correctly. It's actually had a bit of an impact on a few projects. And, and uh, I, I should say as well, you cannot bypass this 
getting into the kernel signing process unless you're running Windows 10 China government edition. And, and that's a special version of Windows. And one of the things it does is it allows custom kernel signers. So you can add in your own root authorities for kernel code. And you know, you, you could see some reasons why maybe try, if you're running China government edition, you wouldn't want to send your kernel drivers to Microsoft for uh, yeah. uh, you know, review. Um, it, you, the only other way is to essentially modify and, and hack your UEFI firmware, which is really tough. So it, it, it's TL, TLDR, it's hard to get in the kernel. But there was this project recently, I, I'm sure many of you have heard of it called Process Hacker. And uh, Microsoft recently put it on the driver block list to ban the kernel extension of it and effectively killing the project and kicking it out of the kernel. And the reason they did that, um, you know, according to, uh, you know, Twitter reads um, from Microsoft and, and also the project authors is, you know, Microsoft just said, yeah, arbitrary kernel read and write causes a security issue. Because what you could do with the process hacker kernel extension is you could actually just go in, use the kernel driver to terminate protected processes or whatever you want. It made it really easy to kill security vendors. We actually have seen, you know, a few people tweeting different endpoint security companies saying, hey, I was able to kill your endpoint security product. And the vendor comes back and goes, well, you're using a kernel driver to do that. That's kind of unfair. Microsoft has said, well, you can't do that, kick you out of the kernel. And the uh, Process Hacker project has actually now changed to another project called System Informer, which is friendlier. And it, it has a kernel mode, so you can see what's going on in the kernel. Uh, but no longer can you kill protected processes and do nasty things. So Microsoft seems to be drawing this line in the sand. So what says, you're saying is they are actually making it a security boundary. Like, and we can have an yes. academic... And, and look, I think this is kind of where Adam and I arrived at, you know, in, in the end, which is you can have an academic discussion about whether it is or if it isn't. But in reality, it acts as one. So therefore, it is one. Exactly right. And, you know, you can look at the Microsoft servicing criteria for bugs where it says a non-administrative user mode process cannot access or tamper with kernel code. And it says in the servicing criteria, administrator to kernel is not a security boundary. But I feel as though that is only being put there for the purposes of the bug bounty program, because if, you know, you yeah, can just yeah, write yeah, a vulnerable yeah, yeah. driver, so they don't want to service that, but it is a boundary, right? Daniel, I want to I want to bring you into this uh, as well, CTO uh, Daniel Shell here. Uh, Dave just mentioned that the you know, and he glossed over this, right? But he did just mention that the Microsoft driver block list actually works now. Yeah, so the the, the driver block list, I think, has worked as far as the first release of the, the the thing. I think the challenge for them has been more that as the driver block list is being updated, they haven't been servicing those updates into the product, and. I think there's you know there's a lot of confusion or there's been confusion about how it is actually serviced. Like, is it does Windows Defender enforce the Microsoft block list? Is it just a attack service reduction? Is it part of Windows Defender for XYZ business enterprise APT? Like, there's so much confusion that people are like, how do I get this? And well, you know, I mean, the, I the, guess the fact that people it took people a long time to notice that the block list wasn't being updated on endpoints gives you an idea that no one really understood how it was supposed to be working in the first place. Yeah, well, I, I, that's definitely the case there to some degree as well, and I and I think it's also just yeah, it's the real challenge for people to like how do they test that? How yeah. do they can they do they go get these drivers? How do they load these drivers to actually test that it is working? There are some challenges around this. It's a case of the def, definitely the Microsoft driver block list has been changing. Yeah, <laughs> as has the Microsoft block, but people and people haven't. Yeah, they just haven't. Those updates just haven't been getting through. Yeah, so it's right. not a case. So, it's not a case that it wasn't working. It's just that it wasn't being updated correctly. 
Yeah, and and a lot of people just didn't have it turned on. Yeah, as well, or they or they thought they had it turned on and didn't have it turned on. Um, and I think that's like, how do you test that the Microsoft recommended blockers rule is working? I think that's saying that's worth. You know, I guess to any listeners, if you think you've got it applied, go go install Process Hacker and see if it actually runs the. You know, if it pops up and says no, no, this driver is not allowed. David, just on that Process Hacker thing, like, was that just signed by a third party certificate, like from a CA or whatever, or you know, and. and how how was it getting in the kernel in the first place? Well, it was you have to be signed by Microsoft, right, to be in the kernel. So so there's Process Hacker, the user mode app, which allows you to sort of you know do task manager type stuff. But then there, with the power of it was the, the kernel, kernel the kernel extension. Yeah, the kernel yeah, driver. So so, yeah. so what? Microsoft signed that. Yeah, they would have. They've been signing it. Yeah, and upon <laughs> review, you know, seeing the noise, then they Microsoft. Well, someone at Microsoft kind of went. Uh, actually, we can't allow this anymore because you know you can start to do nefarious things with a point and click tool, and Microsoft. Kicked I mean, them I, out I and, can understand. I can understand how yeah. some of the anti cheat stuff might slide by, and Microsoft's going to sign it, and then attackers figure out how to use it maliciously. But something called Process Hacker getting signed by Microsoft—that seems well, like they're signing it. Based well, on you know it it does what it says on the tin and they're still signing it that seems a bit weird but you know it's interesting that they stopped yeah and and that's why it's had a rebranding to System Informer yes 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 of course you get informed what's happening in the kernel now you know you can't mess with it but <laughs> but look speaking speaking of these of these other drivers right these are ones like um you know the Shamoon attacks back in like 2010 against Saudi Aramco they used a uh, disk utility driver uh, what was it called. I can't remember the name of the actual utility, but a lot of actors were, were threat actors were using that to do wiping because it was a it was a it was a it was a um, kernel driver that allowed you know direct disk access and whatnot. So it's all well and good that Microsoft is going to inspect all of these drivers, but like where, I think the trouble for them is going to be finding the line. What if there's an anti-cheat driver that someone submits that could be abused but is being used for legitimate purposes by a game studio? You know, what should Microsoft do there, in your opinion, Dave? Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it's about the ability to, you know, write to kernel memory, uh, you know, and manipulate kernel memory, essentially. So, you know, if, if you're, uh, because if you're in the kernel, uh, like, I, I guess stepping back, look, customers have an expectation on us as a security vendor in order to be able to stop administrators disabling security tools and, and breaking it. And kernel obviously allows you to break that. So I think as soon as there's a driver that allows sort of arbitrary writing of kernel memory that's outside of its own business, then that's probably a line that I would I would draw. But, but I mean, you can't, again, you can't really enforce its business once it's in the kernel though, Dave. That's the problem though, isn't and, it? And, yeah, and now I'm thinking how silly I sound because it's like if you're an endpoint security vendor, you will need reasons to write into other processes. So, you know... That's probably a really silly point. <laughs> yeah, um, no, but I mean, we're all we're all figuring it out there, man. Oh. Like, and you know, but but I mean, that's that's the that's always going to be the issue, right? Is like mm. there are going to be these there are going to be kernel extensions, kernel drivers that are going to have reason to have an Arbright permission, right? And they're going to yeah. get abused. So, I mean, how does what's Microsoft going to do about that part of it? Like, how do they fix that? I'd I'd say on that. You know, it's also what controls do they have? Like, you know, you don't want to have the interface of the driver to just be read-write generically. Like, you can design it better, right? Or at least put other controls. Like, definitely don't let that. Don't let users talk to that driver from user mode. Yeah, that is a pretty good start as well. Um, but I mean, usually, or, like you know, an, attack, make... an attacker's already got admin. Um, you know, if they're in a position to install the driver anyway, so. 
Yeah, there is that weakness. There is that sort of other area where it's like these drivers are actually deployed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, so, so that, yeah, it's still a good idea. One, maybe don't good. let user mode talk to it. Yeah, understood. Yeah, um, but yeah, you know, from a band perspective, sure. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's really you know this whole thing is just a you know a beers conversation, right? <laughs> Where you what about this and what about this? And what, Dave's, yeah, Dave's yeah, just sitting there hours. shaking his head now, and this was his yeah, idea. Just, this topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's 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 you know it, like everything in security in these decisions, it it, it comes down to intent and purpose. Um, which is like, you know, why why do you need to be in, in the kernel? Does this add value, uh, you know, to to anything in a positive way? Does it, you're required to be here because you need your, you know, your application to work and, and what's the intent of that? And is it, does it positively or negatively impact the general ecosystem? But I'm guessing, I'm guessing they've, you know, in the, as part of these updates, they've handled revocation in a more intelligent way than uh, perhaps previously. And I'm not sure how the previous revocation process worked but i'm guessing now like they're well as you pointed out right they they have a block list that is working and i guess if we start seeing some of these kernel drivers getting abused um mm. they can revoke them my, my concern is that they're going to let one through eventually that's going to be a very popular uh, uh kernel driver for whatever reason whether it's anti-cheat on a popular game or something like that and it gets to the point where if they revoke it they're gonna cause too much wah wah, and then it's and then we're sort of back to square one. But I think ultimately, yeah, like what you've pointed out, is that this is becoming a security boundary, even if there's some details to work out. Exactly, yeah. the existence of this process and these features speak to that. You know, they need to be able to control it. Um, and yeah, you're right. If you revocation of drivers is hard because you can really break things. Like you could. Yeah, you don't know what the outcome's going to be rather than just removing an exe. Yeah, well, I'd say also, of course, you know, we obviously, like, the reason that I sit there and obsess about the Microsoft Recommended Driver Block List is that people use our technology or Airlock to enforce it. And it's, you know, a compliance requirement in Australia um, as part of the essential aid to block the Microsoft Recommended Driver Block List, amongst other things. Um, so at the very least, I guess when you look at it from our perspective, it's a granular. You can be more granular, right? So, and if we think about an org, like we're not talking about doing allowing listing for gamers. Yeah. <laughs> so if they put that, if they put that in there, like it's got to be blocked anyway because it's not a trusted file in the first place. So if you take that allow listing lens, all of this doesn't really matter too much. It's really restricts it. Like when you look at the Microsoft recommended driver block list as a whole, you're like, oh, here's cheat engine, here's process hacker. We want to stop all those things because you're assuming that you're going to allow these things. You you allow software to run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> um, I'm with you. I'm with for, you. I mean, it's it's it, yeah. it, you for, are definitely... for us. The view's a bit different. For us, it's like, well, we don't want NVIDIA leak drivers. Yeah, <laughs> or so, things from the NVIDIA signed files, or we don't want um, a Microsoft signed file from being allowed to run yet. That's not great. So it's it's sort of a slightly different lens that we can look at through this too that is a point um, though because now all of a sudden you're going to be dealing with drivers that are all signed by microsoft right which does that complicate your life so typically there's two uh certificates that are attached as well there'll be like the the microsoft hardware validation certificate and then you will often have the other vendor certificate um you know so what we can do is we can actually you know either you could just say okay well we allow all the microsoft hard anything signed by microsoft hardware that's our bar allow everything or you can control it based on the individual vendor certificate if you yeah want no that well. makes that makes sense yeah, yeah. that makes so sense it's your security posture i guess and you make the call guys thanks for joining me to to have that discussion about um a bit of an academic beer uh, yeah beer in the hand discussion about um uh about admin to uh kernel as a security boundary great to chat to you both of you thanks patrick cheers patrick thanks 
That was Daniel Shell and David Cottingham there talking about windows and drivers and all that good stuff. And you can find Airlock Digital at airlockdigital.com. Uh, and yeah, if you're allow list curious, do go check them out. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow in the uh, Risky Business News feed with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast with Tom Uren. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.